Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkoy. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, November 8th through 11th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Francis Badalamenti's debut novel, I Don't Blame You, reads like a memoir of a grief-ridden childhood. It's a story of a young woman's coming of age in a broken family. The main character, Anna, grew up in a large and happy Italian-American family that crumbles with her parents' divorce just as she's becoming a teen. As the youngest child, Anna was the last one living at home. Her mother's poor choices and poor mental health made it a tough place for a teenage kid. The novel describes many different forms of grief, of an isolating and lost childhood, of missed opportunities with both her mother and father and of a child's powerlessness in watching her mother slip further and further from stability into a life that is chaotic and unhealthy. The book also tackles Anna's ultimate grief of losing her mother on the precipice of becoming a mother herself. Throughout, there is a very powerful acknowledgement of the love that exists in Anna's world, so much so that love is like another character in this story. There are elements that draw from the author's own experiences, and it surprised me to learn what she had gone through. Fran and I met when our children attended the same preschool. I grew up in an animated immigrant family, so it was no surprise that I was drawn to Fran's East Coast vibe. There are threads of the story told in I Don't Blame You that resonate with me because I am reminded of my own childhood and what it was like to become a mother when my own mother was no longer living. Something came over me and I I put a lot of those feelings aside because, you know, you're a new mother and you're in survival mode. And there was so much joy um, in all of the the chemistry, the, the chemicals, like the body chemicals. Yeah. And I had a home birth. So it was, I was home. And so I was really cozy, and it was just the the birth itself was very cathartic. Um, so I I fed off of those good feelings for so long, for a long time, and nursing hormones, and yeah. you know, so I was just juiced up with all the good stuff. So really, the the things hit, the feelings didn't hit until much later. Yeah, like how old was your son when you started to feel the things? Yeah. You know, I I think it came up, I would say, like, when the sleep deprivation hit. 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think that's when all the things come up. Yeah. You know, I I had really accepted my situation um, that my mom wasn't going to be around. I had already accepted that and that, that maybe that was actually a good thing, like that her physical presence was not there because we had such a challenging experience together. Yeah. For myself, I think there was so much hope in becoming a mom. And again, it's like you said, those happy chemicals. Right. And I think I, I don't know about you, but Mm. I was really bolstered because I also, and I think similarly to you, did not have family here in town. Right. Right. And I was really bolstered by these kind of magical people that just showed up Mm. and kind of mommed me. Mm -hmm. Did you have that too? I did, and I don't know that I was able to truly take that in at that time. I think I was really um, guarded. Yeah. You were, yeah, you possibly not ready for for that kind of people to come into your world. Right, because it was so, like, the, like, I lost my mom when I was seven months pregnant, so I, that was, it was so new yeah, that I hadn't been able to think about like, okay, well, who's going to be like my surrogate mom? I had great midwives uh-huh. and they were really nourishing and helpful. I just don't think I was ready to take in like a friend or um, anyone else just yet. Yeah. That wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. I, I think I was in some kind of shock. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty fresh. It was really new. Now, my mother-in-law came. So that's that's my spouse's mom, right? Um, and that was actually really hard. That was really hard. That was really triggering and, and very challenging to have her in our in that space. Was it hard because she wasn't your mom or was it hard because of how she wanted to help you or was it? It was hard. Because she's also from another culture that I wasn't very familiar with. So my husband is half Korean. So she she was born and raised in Seoul, Korea. And so customs are very different. So I'm Italian-American, yeah. right? You know, my husband's Korean-American. Mom is from Seoul, Korean woman. Very, very different. So I she came in... Like trying to kind of, um, I'm going to tell you what to do, oh, no. right? But that's their, but that's a cultural thing that I've learned is like, okay, the the grandma, the harmony comes in and takes over, tells you how to raise your child. Oh my gosh, that would have driven me crazy. It was really challenging. It was really challenging, but the intention is good. Yes, of course. I remember when. Um, when my first kiddo was born and my dad said he was sending my grandmother out mm. and she wanted to come for two weeks. And I said, five days. Right. Because <laughs> I think I knew that she would drive me crazy. Drive tell- crazy. Telling me all the th- ways I needed to do stuff. Like, I remember her telling me, like, that I that that I would have to wrap my belly around. Yep. yep. Did your mother-in-law tell you that? No, too? but I've heard about that. That's a cu- That's a custom. Yeah. That's a custom. And uh, I was like, yeah, no. So, Not going to do that. No. She was pretty She was pretty great, though, from what I remember. In that time. Yeah. Plus, my grandmother was really very 
physical. <laughs> she was very physical with us. Uh-huh. Like kind of imagining like the the cheek pinching yeah. with me as a child. And so I was just yeah. imagining like how she would, you know, just as they say, manhandle my yeah. baby. And right. so I, I, I say five days. Max. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know exactly what you mean. I think that we, we sometimes it's, uns- it's just unsolicited. We don't need. And that could just be either cultural or just the time and place. So how long was your mother-in-law there? She, just a few days. Oh, okay. Just a few days. Yeah. But it sounds to me like outside of the sleep deprivation. Right. You really felt like you had it. Yeah, right. I didn't feel, I didn't feel a lack of control. But you had mothering down. Right. I, I, or I I thought, I may have thought that I did. Like, yeah, I think it was pretty natural. I think everything was, you know, I had this natural home birth and, you know, nursing was not a struggle. I didn't need anything or I didn't think I needed anything, if that makes sense. Sure. In retrospect, right? So in retrospect, what do you feel like you needed that you didn't have? I, I, if I could have had, you know, opened my heart more to my own needs of like, you just lost your mom, like that kind of need. I, I was just very shut off and just blissed out. So you had this contrast of both the bliss of, of new motherhood. Right. Which really shut down. The grief process. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It postponed the grief process. Yeah. And even during my pregnancy and dealing with my mom who was undergoing cancer treatment, you have a pregnant woman has so many protective hormones. Yeah. Right? You're, that body is protecting that baby. Right. So isn't that interesting? It just got like the pause button. It's interesting, but completely understandable. Right. Because you've got this new life. Right. Yeah. That you are responsible for both physically mm-hmm. and you have to be emotionally prepared mm-hmm. to do this work once this baby comes. Right. And so, you know, there's only so much capacity for, and the, I could see where there just wasn't room to grieve at that point. There was not room. If I, if I like folded, let's say I did, right? Let's say it was even more like a postpartum depression slash grief right? Who would I have? Like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, like, the structure in place to, like, hold me. Yeah. Right? Like, there, so I think I also knew that. Like, I couldn't cave. I don't have my immediate family. And I didn't feel like I had friends that I felt comfortable enough, intimate enough to lean on. Yeah. If I fell apart. So at what age did you feel, when your child was what age, did you feel like the grieving process could begin? It really hit, I would say, maybe it started when he was about three months old. Like when really, like I said, the sleep deprivation, because sleep deprivation is like, it brings on all the feelings. You're not right. Yeah. It's really torturous. I, I would say from like three months to like two years was my like bad it was the bad time. It was like the dark days for sure. And really challenging. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. 
We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. From your book, I I gathered that your own childhood was pretty challenging because you have siblings, but you're significantly younger than your siblings. I am. I can't. I there were three children born in the '60s, and then there was a ten-year gap, and then I was born. So it's really like two different families. Yeah, in a lot of ways, same parent, same parents, all by bio- you know, same biology, but really. We had completely different upbringings. I had completely a completely different upbringing than my siblings. And how was that different? So they were raised in an intact family in Queens, New York. Yeah. In a wonderful enclave called Middle Village. Um, and, you know, you walk to school, you walk to the park, you walk to the store. Mom had her little wagon for the groceries. Neighbors watching over everybody, all the kids. Then flash forward 10 years, and I'm we had moved out to suburban New Jersey. All my siblings are gone out of the house. So they were off working yeah. or in school. And you, right. And you were how, how old then? I was about 10. Okay. I was about 10. So my brother closest in age would be, that's 20, 22, and 24, something like that. Oh, right? Wow. So they're like, go- they're launched. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And there's me, still a little kid. So I was 10 years old when my mom mm. died. Mm. So that's a pretty crucial time because you're just, you know, you're just entering this about to hit preteen. Right. So you're you're pretty formed. Right. And so your memories, and so like, so when our mom died, my sister was three years old. Oh. So our, our experience is right. so different. Profound. Because she has no memories. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But in some ways, it's so painful when you have the memories of when things mm. were, well, for in reading your book, functioning pretty well. Before the split, the, before my parents split. It sure seemed like it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, totally. So again, back to Queens, three kids, even when I was tiny, tiny, neighbors, family, Irish, Catholic, Italian, Catholic, neighborhood, close-knit, all the things— very, very functioning, but under the surface, right? Something was clearly brewing or something was not quite right. Right. That came out when we moved to New Jersey. Right. You share such beautiful stories about like, didn't your dad have like a country house or mm-hmm. a boat? Or mm-hmm. a- yeah. So we had a house in upstate New York, a little cabin. Yeah. And... Yes, that was that was a big part of our lives. And that also was a community, that a different community. And that also we brought our community up there as well. And we would cram in and have big meals. And there was a, a, a an amazing pool in the community. You know, it was just this amazing experience. And you spent summers there mostly. It was summers. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But that was when your family was still together. Still intact. Yeah. Still intact. And then my dad kept that house. So I would still go there, but this in such a different capacity. And if it seemed to me from reading your book Mm -hmm. that that's where your bond with your dad was really Mm -hmm. strong. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. We would, 
you know, just go up together. And it, it was like, he loved it. He loved the outdoors and puttering around. And I loved being there too. So yeah, we sh- we were really the only ones left that enjoyed that house. Yeah. So I yeah, I get where you can see that connection. Nobody else really cared after after the family broke up. Nobody else cared to go up there. Yeah. Except he and I for sure. And I would bring friends. Fun. I know it was really fun. <laughs> Living with your mom mm-hmm. on your own. Right. It didn't seem like there was an awareness of mm. how challenging it was for you to in some ways you were kind of taking care of your mom. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if I could, if I probably wasn't even taking care of her, like, yes and no. Like, she just wasn't taking care of herself. Right. And I think I was just sort of picking up all the pieces that I could at that age. I wasn't, it wasn't like I was like giving, bringing her tea or food or, right? Like, it wasn't like I was like that kind of taking care of her. So how were you taking care of her? I was taking care of her in the way that I was just taking care of myself. So mm-hmm. I alleviated her of the duties of taking care of me. That's really it. That's a lot when you're 10, 11, of 12 Of course years old. it is. Of and course. so that's something I saw in the book was this kind of grieving over this childhood. And I don't, right. I don't know if you did this. Right. I don't know. Were you comparing yourself with your siblings at all? Or were you just kind of in it and just going, I know Mm -hmm. this isn't what it should be. And then on the other side, because you made a choice to be with your mom because your dad's, your dad had remarried. Right. And I'm drawing, I'm extrapolating a lot of from your book and and applying it to your personal uh, experience, which I imagine to be very close to. Very close. That relationship was... It was better to be with your mom than to live with this stepmom that was just not kind. No, no. It both sucked equally. Both both households, I would say, in equal weight. They both had different things. Like, my mom had, like, lo- tons of love. And, like, she was just a really kind person. Yeah, I got So that. I had that there. But it was just chaos and, like, not enough food and money. And it was kind of—it was dirty and it wasn't being kept. And she wasn't taking care of herself. At my dad's house, it was a huge, beautiful four-bedroom house and ton, like plenty of food, but it was walking on eggshells. So there, like, there wasn't one that was really better or worse, right? Yeah. You were in survival mode right. through so much of your childhood. That's correct. And into your teens. Right. And the interesting part about being in that kind of survival mode is that, and that I've learned about and just like kind of processing this is that it's invisible. Yeah. Because the, a nor, like a person looks in and everything looks okay. Nobody's in jail. Nobody's a drug addict. Nobody's an alcoholic. Like nobody, my clothing was clean. I had, you know, dress, always managed to dress well and have haircuts or, yeah. Right? Like things were sort of like somehow put together on the surface. It was a facade. When I was reading this book mm-hmm. and just hearing you talk about this, I'm I'm wondering if as you were in this survival mode, mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder how much of the awareness of the dysfunction mm-hmm. you were dealing with in that moment right. or how much of it you were dealing with in retrospect, like looking back going, man, mm-hmm. my childhood was not 
what it should have been. That knowledge or that awareness of my childhood was whacked out or shouldn't have, like, it wasn't right came much later. Yeah. Because any child, any child, it's like, unless you're exceptional, right? You don't know any different. No. Right? Yeah. You're in the cave. It's like Plato's allegory of the cave. You don't know until, like, you're pulled out of it. Correct. And a lot of people still live in it. They they don't ever, they don't ever realize. They don't have that sense of, like, you, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like you could easily live, in, continue to live in that same feeling and not even be aware that you're not in it anymore. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. You know, I lost my mom pretty tragically when I was young, my Mm -hmm. sister really young. It was all my extended immigrant family Mm. that came up and was so loving and so supportive, Mm. which I think is how I got to being this whole adult. Right. And I think like you, I wasn't in the moment able to, I mean, I th- of course there was this awareness that I was unlike other kids. Like so most every kid I knew had a mom mm-hmm. and I didn't. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think I always carried that pain, but um, it didn't hold me back. Right. But I also, and something I've been reflecting on a lot lately is like, I also realized that no one in my family ever really modeled for me how to grieve. Right. And so I, to some extent, I had stuffed down mm-hmm. that loss mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. until more recently. So I had that Im- big, Im- vibrant, the culture of these immigrant families that mm. and the, the the parties and the dinners and the food and all these incredible elements of of uh family and the importance of family right and um and then people got old and people got sick and right. other people died right and, um and i you know to some extent my mother was so much the glue of that family right so when she wasn't around to get everyone together a lot of that fell away so i i was right reading your the, your book i right. was like so much of this feels like my story too, mm-hmm. although my father kept our household functioning pretty well outside of some of that personal experience that you right. had. Right. So I'm just, I'm very fascinated mm. by the contrast between that rich culture of family, right. that Italian American family that you experienced, mm-hmm. and then contrasted against um, how all that just fell away and the isolation you and your mom had. Right, right. That did go away. That definitely went away when my parents split up. That definitely went away. My dad's side of the family was ver- was larger. It was a larger family. So that's that that definitely fell away. It was just in a different way because we're split at holidays and yeah. my mom's side of the family was much smaller, but um so we did still get that sense of community and family. It was just um it was split. It wasn't the same as when your parents were together and definitely fell away for sure in a lot of ways. 
something else I read in your book mm. is really like you really grieving for your mom and in her isolation. Right, right, right. You grieving for your mom being so isolated. Right. So after I had my son and the grief started hitting during the first couple of years of his life, I started putting pieces together about my mom's life. Yeah. Right? So that was the beginning of my process of, of healing my childhood. Uh, and that a lot of that developed into what the book is, my book is. Yeah. Early essays and exploration of what, what was this all about? So yes, I, I, I have grieved a lot for her and her losses and her childhood and her illnesses, un- undiagnosed mental illness. And so, yes, that was, that was a big part of a process of grieving for sure. Really putting pieces together. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating how like sometimes it just clicks like, oh my gosh, how did I, yeah, how did I not see that before? That's right. That's right. Like, wow, that was a sign of undiagnosed mental illness right. or gosh, that must have been such a lonely place for her to right. been. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I even went to grad school and studied counseling psychology to sort of unpack a lot of this. I joke that I spent, you know, $40,000 so I could diagnose my mother, mm. you know, because I never really understood what was what happened or what was wrong with her. Do you think she was ever aware of her own mental health? Challenges? I don't believe so. My brother and I talk about it a lot. I don't I don't believe that there was much insight there. I think there was too much trauma. I think she had significant, significant trauma of growing up in the Bronx with a single mother and poverty and during the depression, like really intense stuff. Yeah. So no, I don't, I don't think that there was a name for it for her. Yeah. I really don't. I could be wrong. I don't know. I just don't, I really don't. I would be shocked. I don't think so. I know in my family, there was so much stigma around mental health. That's right. I know that they didn't talk about it. Right. Just like they didn't model how to grieve for That's me. That's right. Like I have this one memory of being a child and um, I was probably playing with toys and mm. might have been singing to myself or talking to myself. And I remember one of my great aunts coming up to me and was like, don't talk to yourself. Mm. And um, I always I thought that was intense. That is and really I, intense. And I remember for years questioning, like, is it wrong? Why is it wrong to talk to yourself? Like, and then it clicked for me later on life. I had one of those aha moments. Right. When I was looking back, maybe decades later, and I was just like, oh, they don't want you to talk to yourself because they think that that's a sign of mental Maybe. Illness. Right. And, and that it can be, you know washed away by just making sure that the symptoms don't happen or the or the or these right just stuff it yeah or if you don't talk to yourself you won't have mental illness right right <laughs> you know I mean? yeah yeah it could it could have been that or it could have been as simple as like that's just eccentric and weird don't do it but yeah. whatever it is it's it, it's made you feel shame yeah not to mention i think that it's really challenging I mean, I think that there's so much focus on the immigrant story and mm. immigrants coming to America and right. having and having all this opportunity and promise and getting to like open up a business and and right. uh, get started and 
make money and send it home and bring family over. And I think people have really missed like all the trauma involved in coming Absolutely. here and to leaving the life you had, the the, the traditions, the mm. the your culture, your people. And then I I imagine, and I don't know, and I haven't done enough research, but I just know from my own family that mm. that it's incredibly challenging for immigrants. The, the mental health, mental wellness of the immigrant community to even get here. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, even just mental health in general in our culture now is right. challenging, right? Yeah, it's true. When you're not getting your basic, I mean, I think it comes down to when you're not getting your basic needs met, like how are you going to even look at something like your mind or your behavior? Right. Right? Such a good point. You know, I think it comes down to that. What do you look to to model a healthy family mm. of your own when what you've experienced has not been that? I think that I've extrapolated all the good, like not all, but a lot of the good stuff. I mean, it's taken enough years. My child is 11 going on 12. So it's been a process of like, what do I not want to do? Or what do I want to take from my parents? Even my stepmother, who was an awful to me, had good qualities. Yeah. Right. So you you know I've I think I've extracted the good things. That's the pretty, love. You know. That's pretty awesome. Not everything. We're not perfect. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm you're, pretty good. You're pretty close to perfect. I'm pretty good, but. <laughs> I think, yeah, I've, I I took all the the bad stuff and just wanted to do opposite, which is, I think, a common thing. Either you're going to follow in the footsteps of the garbage and you're going to stay in the garbage or you're going to say, that did not feel good and I'm going to change it and be different. Yeah. I think you have that, you have that choice. It's your, it's your, you make a choice in how you're going to parent. That's pretty awesome. I mean, you've come a long way, Fran. Oh, I, I mean, I hope. <laughs> so the book, uh-huh. writing the book, that was that was a big like element in your in your path to moving forward with your grief. It it was the thing. It, it was, was the, the thing. thing. I think it was. It, I think it was. I had always been a writer, but I had zero confidence in myself to either share it or like actively identify as a writer until I found myself like needing to put pieces together. Like what happened? Like what? I was pregnant and my mom was going through cancer treatment and then she died when I was pregnant. Like what does that even mean? Like that's a story. And like I knew that was such a strong narrative and like a story. And so that brought me to be able to become a writer in a real way. And the, the, the act of writing that book was my healing for sure, or the beginning of my healing. Yeah. The bright star that came out of this book was that I had lived my life with so much shame and like lesser thanness that the opportunity to like put this out into the world gave me a sense of like, I can actually have a voice, right? When you grow up in that kind of environment, you're just like squashed down. Yeah. And that culture, very patriarchal too, the culture I grew up in. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay. So, it yeah, it gave me a voice and it, it made me feel okay about being a writer. And that's just priceless, I feel. 
And just to have my my child will someday read the story. You know, everybody says that it's kind of corny, but yeah, it's a gift. I feel like my story was a gift. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.